In the hours following Jennifer Farber Dulos's bloody disappearance from her garage in New Canaan, Connecticut on a Memorial Day weekend 2019, cops quickly zero in on possible suspects. Her estranged husband, Fotis Dulos, his mistress, Michelle Traconis, and a lawyer pal of Dulos named Kent Mahini. These three amigos are intertwined in our story. Now back to Cynthia Fagan and Pamela K. Brown. By the time of her disappearance, Fotis and Jennifer had been locked in a divorce from hell. Remember, she had the money. Her aunt and uncle were the founders of the Liz Claiborne fashion empire. Her dad, Hilliard, was a banker and together with her mother, Gloria, were both big-time philanthropists. Jennifer at first generously offered joint custody of the kids, but Fotis would have none of it. Best friend Carrie Luff remembers knockdown, drag-out court battles. I don't think she went into this naively, thinking that it would just be uh, simple and clean. At the same time, um, just volume of of motions, the obstructive behavior, the lying in court, the contempt of court was incredibly exhausting. And I think it was also strategically designed to wear her down. Going back to his disregard for court orders, you said, you know, we talked about how pathologically late he was for everything. He was notoriously late during this uh, time. And he showed up early one time. And this is two days before Jennifer is murdered. Yeah, I guess I just wanted to point out that all of this is in the public record, uh, but that there was a supervised visitation at the New Canaan home and Fotis showed up a half an hour early. Since Fotis was not allowed in the house, was he plotting as to where he would lay in wait to attack his estranged wife? Jennifer had been concerned that he uh, you know, never be allowed in the house or even all the way up the driveway and um, you know to 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 learn that he had arrived early and driven his car halfway up the driveway uh, is is just chilling in retrospect you know uh, you know unfortunately it, it's just all too clear what the designs were that day so how did Jennifer and Fotis, who shared five children together, get to this point in a once happy marriage? We dug deeper and tracked down a friend of the couple, Rana Marie Giuliano. I met them long before Jefferson Crossing. I met them back in Canton in 2004. Jennifer and I had headed off and... Um, so our families became friends and we were pregnant at the same time. In fact, uh, my son is six weeks apart from Christiane and Constantine. There were events and things that we would do together, whether it was for um, activities for the four group or dinner parties, um, holidays. Uh, I recall spending Easter um, with Jennifer and her family at their home. Um, Christmas Eves we would spend together, which was always a fun event where um, Fotis's mother would dress up as Santa Claus and come ringing the doorbell. 
Rana, tell me a little bit about their relationship. She was always very accommodating to whatever it was that made Fotis happy. So if it was teaching the children Greek, um, she welcomed it. If it was learning how to water ski, she was all over it. <laughs> so she always aimed to please Fotis, no matter how high that bar was. The couples traveled together to Aspen, Colorado, and to Greece. So, but Greece was lovely. Greece, Greece is a, a beautiful uh, country. Um, we were there for Clea Noel's uh, christening party um, celebration. And, you know, Jennifer's parents were there as well. It was fabulous. I mean, there was no detail that Jennifer ever left out. She was almost like a Martha Stewart in that particular, um, you know, regard. Although I do believe that Jennifer would probably be happy with a small celebration that had lots of French fries and Diet Coke. (laughs) <laughs> and very quaint. Tragedy followed Photos and Jennifer back at their home in Connecticut. It's September 2010. Photos has his family living in the chaos of yet another one of his spec mansions he's trying to complete. Jennifer is nine months pregnant with their fifth child. And while he's pursuing his water skiing competitions around the world, he decides to bring two people from Greece to help out and live with a family. One is Petra, his mother, and the other is a 20-something young woman tasked as a nanny. You know, the grandmother didn't, I don't think Petra was too fond of the nanny. In a freak accident, while Fotis is somewhere in Europe, his mother Petra is run over and killed by the young Greek nanny. And this is just days away from Jennifer giving birth. Never forget that night when I got the phone call from Jennifer. And um, unfortunately, the nanny didn't see her as she was backing out of the garage. She asked her to get out, you know, I guess to get out of the car to kind of load up the kids and to to make sure she was pulling out okay. But then the nanny didn't see her and accidentally hit her and she was brought to Yukon Hospital. She just died. Where was Fotis? I believe Fotis was away on one of his um, trips. I, th- I think he might have been in Italy this time. I'm not certain. Was that frustrating? I mean, did you get a sense that Jennifer couldn't find him or anything? Or uh... no, I, I I don't I don't know about that. I, I'm I'm not sure if she did try to notify him or leave a message on his cell or something to that extent. Um, I do believe that Fotis was, you know, informed, but she had bled out from the inside. She was very cold. Patrick was feeling very cold in the hospital, and I don't think they understood why. How did how did Jennifer handle that? being on her own. Like she handles everything. I know Jennifer um, wasn't very pleased, you know, with the services of this particular nanny with some things that, you know, she would do, whether it was, you know, always on her phone or not really um, making sure that the children felt like they were important, right? Because if you're always on your phone, what are you communicating to the children? I mean, did the police interview her? Oh, the police did interview her, yes. Fotis wanted to make certain that he was very supportive of the nanny and that it was an accident. And so um, when the police did, you know, get involved and they investigated, they determined that, it, you know, it was an accident. And 
So at her funeral, Fotis wanted to make sure that the nanny sat next to him and that she was um, seen as uh, respected and that it was genuinely an accident. And shortly thereafter, I believe she went back to Greece. But for whatever reason, Fotis insisted his mother Petra be buried in Connecticut and not back in Greece. Do you think that he brought this woman in because this was... um a so-called girlfriend so that she could move in, take care of the kids, and he could still uh, be with her? No, I don't think Fotis was interested in her. There there were rumors that um, people may have seen him, you know, with, with the nanny or what have you, but I can't speak to that. Um, can I give you my belief that Fotis was cheating on Jennifer back in 2000, even in 2015? And yes. I do believe that. I, I do. You know, marriages in small towns are full of secrets. But I'll tell you one thing during our research for this podcast. You know, several local businessmen and businesswomen I spoke to clearly loved and they all remembered Jennifer and described her as a very nice person, a good neighbor, and an extremely doting mother. They all shared kind words, but they were also very clear that they admitted they were not too fond of photos. Yeah, Fotis thought of himself as an Adonis of sorts. He was full of himself. His Facebook page was all about his conquests and water sports and posing in pictures with pretty women. He had no trouble attracting women. We asked Richard P. Weinstein how hard it's been to unravel Fotis's tangled financial affairs, which was part of his extramarital love life. Yeah, and I'd like to note that Mr. Weinstein represents the Farber family and was not Jennifer's divorce attorney. What does that tell you about photos that he would even propose or demand that his his girlfriend or concubine or mistress and her daughter he would insist to have move in with with Jennifer and and his kids? I would just tell you that everything about this case, everything to do with photos duos, was unusual, atypical had a spin and a turn and a twist, which was almost unimaginable. The things that we've had to go through to try to realize anything for the family and to, in effect, uh, get conclusion on any of these matters, can't believe the complications because of the way he did this. You ever spent any time with Fotis' books? There were lots of fun that I had trouble tracing. Did he have an accountant at the four group? There was an accountant um, who represented him, whose deposition I took. And the most striking thing there was that um, <laughs> this is this is typical Fotis. But the most striking thing was that Fotis had claimed on more than one occasion that Hilliard's loans were really gifts. Then he had a claim that Hilliard's loans were really what we call a capital investment into the four group. So he wanted to convert the money that he owed to the Hilliard-Farber estate into effectively stock in the FOTUS group. And of course, the FOTUS group had no value, so he was wiping out the loans by virtue of making Hilliard-Farber or the estate Um, a partner or a stockholder or a member of the LLC. 
So we asked Carrie Loft about the third person in the Dulos marriage, Michelle Draconis. How much did Jennifer know about Michelle? As I understand, uh, I mean, she had no interest in meeting Michelle, but uh, Michelle had been mentioned uh, casually and referred to as a friend. She was someone um, he had encountered on water skiing trips to Florida. And then when she actually appeared uh, on the scene, I think understandably Jennifer had little interest in uh, being, you know, in the same place as she was, but couldn't avoid it. Uh, Fort Jefferson Crossing. That's where they live. Michelle Traconis' attorney, John Schoenhorn, recalled to us how his client moved in with photos at the Farmington home after Jennifer refused to share the home with the mistress. And I've been there. I mean, it's a fairly big house. It takes almost five minutes to walk from one end to the other. So it, it's a fairly large house. So she meets this man, successful man, businessman. He, at least from all appearances, appears to be wealthy. He travels around the world. He's originally from Greece. He went to Brown University as a graduate degree, and he builds high-end houses. So, you know, when he invites her at some point that he's getting a divorce, he invites her and her daughter to move to in with him and to move to Connecticut. You know, it's, you know, it was like, you know, for her, a single mother um, with a child, like, I, I won't say a dream come true, but it was the kind of romance that made her think that, oh, maybe he's the one. He's very charming. Everyone says he is, right? And, um, you know, he's charmed other women, too. I mean, she didn't know any of that. Schoenhorn insists his client was merely a pawn in Fotis's grand scheme. Money, the kids, and no Jennifer. She moves up here. She's living here for a couple of years when this happened. So suddenly her life is upside down. She's in a fishbowl. But Michelle flaunted her life with photos, and police allege she was a willing co-conspirator to the murder of Jennifer Farbadulos. Now, days after Jennifer's disappearance, the investigation is intensifying, but Fotis and Michelle are certainly keeping up their social life. In the police report, Cynthia, that we both read, Detectives John Kimball and Sergeant Ken Ventresca lay out intricate details from what must have been the world's most awkward barbecue. One of Fotis's water skiing buddy said that Fotis and Michelle showed up at his party near a pond where Fotis and his estranged wife used to water ski with their kids. The host confronts Michelle and Fotis and asks them to leave. Well, the host must have been stunned. And he goes and he says to Fotis, where's Jennifer? Um, well, Fotis refuses to answer and instead complains about Jennifer and the $15,000 in medical bills that she's racked up. And, and it gets worse. How could it get worse? At this moment, Jennifer is a front-page story, and suddenly there's a news flash. Cops have found trash bags in Hartford related to Jennifer's disappearance. And the host remembers, and I'm quoting here, Fotis watched the news story and eventually looked up at Michelle and sort of locked eyes with her for a second. And that's what it took for Fotis to leave the barbecue. <laughs> and call his lawyer. You bet. Imagine the, 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 the pit of his stomach, or a suspect's stomach, when, when something like that hits. Oh my gosh, they had cameras there. 
Brian Foley is a retired deputy chief of the Hartford Police Department. He spent 24 years investigating homicides and major crimes. We met him on Albany Avenue in Hartford on a rainy, windy day to see where Fotis and Michelle were literally caught on camera dumping trash bags on the same day that Jennifer disappeared. To think about somebody who murdered somebody in that moment when they realize, oh shit, there was cameras on that street. The crystal clear video shows Fotis stepping out of his black Ford Raptor truck to dump a series of garbage bags and very public trash cans up and down the avenue. Michelle is sitting in the passenger seat. At one point, she opens the door and reaches down to wipe something off her hand onto the dirty street. Let's talk about the amount of evidence that he was dumping along this that was recorded by cameras. Yep. Multiple stops, multiple trash cans, and they're all rather close together. What a, what a fantastic opportunity to tell, um, and we did at the time, the, the benefits of those cameras and, and the way they were used uh, for good. And, and that's the vast majority of how they are being used, I'm sure. When you personally saw the video, the surveillance video, of uh, Fotis Dulos, who's now being identified in it, and uh, his accomplice or passenger. What was going through your mind at that point? Um, you know, it's hard to not think like a cop. And, you know, you think, <laughs> that doesn't look so hot. What tipped off the police was how Fotis's phone pinged the location, proving he was on Albany Avenue in Hartford around 7 p.m. on the day of Jennifer's disappearance. The Capital City Command Center, known as C4, was asked by investigators to search footage from hundreds of surveillance cameras. They have like centipede eyes. The camera systems here in Hartford also have software built into it as well. So when I say it's five, five grand for each camera, that's not to include the software where we could put it on this intersection here and have where you can get it to say, eliminate every car except for white vans. And then you'll watch the video and you'll only get the white vans as they drive by. So it's, a, it's quite, a, uh, quite a net that is cast in this area and a net meant to um, capture criminals and protect the city. Among the mounds of evidence recovered from those trash cans in Hartford, were the following. Bloody paper towels with Jennifer's DNA. Jennifer's extra small vineyard vine striped shirt and her bra. Bloody zip ties with Jennifer's DNA. Duct tape with Fotis's right index fingerprint on it. And Jennifer, Fotis's and Michelle's Traconis's DNA on a plastic bag. And this more, two plastic garbage bags which were taped together that had both Jennifer and Michelle's DNA on it. And there was also a clear poncho, its hood missing, with Jennifer's DNA present. Cynthia, and I want to stress that, you know, people cannot underestimate that this was a very busy day. Because this was in the same day that Jennifer disappeared. So she disappears in the morning. She's murdered in the morning, and they're finding evidence the same night. They're dumping evidence the same night, absolutely. And it's bloody, it's got every indication that Fotis was at the house. All these surveillance images were captured of Fotis on Michelle on the exact same day that Jennifer disappeared. It's 12 hours, Cynthia. Yeah, he was a very busy guy. Jennifer, as you say, was murdered in the morning, and he's dumping the evidence in the evening with his mistress by his side. Ouch. 
And let's not forget that image of Michelle opening the damn door of the truck to wipe something off her hand. We ask her lawyer about that. You point out something in this latest court filing about Michelle being caught on that surveillance tape in Hartford, and you said your client was just leaning out of the truck to put some gum on this on the street. She told the police in one of those interviews. They said, "What were you, is that you?" And she says, "I, you know, I was chewing gum. I tried to throw it away. It got stuck." It got stuck in the window, so I leaned out to wipe my finger because it wouldn't come off. The issue in the motion is the police knew that when they wrote that motion, the affidavit, I mean. They knew that, and they left that out. So that's what makes it false and misleading. Not that they wouldn't know at the time she's doing it. It's what she told them in that video that makes it a reckless disregard of the truth to leave that out. Did she ever explain uh, why she was with uh, Fotis and why Fotis was uh, stopping uh, to make uh, to throw garbage away? And of course. Yes, she did. She told the police this on several occasions. He invited, he said, let's go out to Starbucks. So why did Fotis pick a tough side of Hartford to dump bloody evidence from Jennifer's murder? Hartford's former deputy police chief, Brian Foley, told us he's seen it tried before. We were also a little upset in that somebody would try, who's not from the city, from the, from the suburbs, to come in here and potentially leave evidence to make it look like somebody in this neighborhood committed said crime. And, you know, take a look around. You tell me we're the only white people standing out here right now. That means that suspect was trying to pin it on a person of color and pin a crime on a person of color. And that was sickening uh, to us. And certainly the residents here and then the stakeholders in the city uh, felt the same way, that someone would try to do it. So it, it exasperates the point that uh, these cameras are here to protect uh, the city and the citizens of Hartford. A day and a half after he dumps the bloody evidence of his handiwork, Fotis's charade continues. He shows up unannounced at Gloria Farber's Manhattan apartment claiming his kids have been abducted, and he gets in a fight with the doorman. Carrie, can you speak publicly about uh, the time that Fotis came to the house, to the New York uh, apartment, um, to and he got into a confrontation, some kind of fisticuff uh, with the doorman? was supposed to be there at all. Um, he was not to have contact with the children. He was not to cross state lines to see the children. And they were, you know, and forgive me if I'm somehow like not getting my legalese correct there, but uh, he, you know, he was trespassing. He showed up at the apartment of, of Jennifer's mother where we were all hunkered down. And uh, that was very frightening. And he, you know, confronted the doorman and, we called 911 and uh, the police came and, and spoke to him and eventually he left. Fotis may have thought he got away with murder. At least for the time being, he did. Coming up on episode four of Killing Time, the podcast. While the police are closing in on Fotis Dulos and those who helped him hatch the murder plot, Jennifer is still missing. No body has been found. Fotis Dulos' new criminal defense lawyer claims Jennifer is actually safe and sound and has staged her own disappearance, just like in the best-selling book and movie, Gone Girl. Um, you heard us say today in court uh, 
uh, comments that Jennifer made to Mr. Dulos that give us grave concerns for her safety and well-being. Um, we are actively contemplating a revenge suicide hypothesis as an explanation for her disappearance. <laughs> 